house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. The key, the key verse is verse 3, that Christ was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. The question which, which we have then is, uh, well, let me just save that for the sermon, actually. Uh, the doxology now. Let us stand together and sing in response to God's word. Praise God from seated and if you would please look with me in your bulletins to the canons of Dort as we continue to commemorate what was I think last year uh, the 400th anniversary of these uh, of this historic reform creed Uh, we're nearly done as a matter of fact Uh, and following this in just a few weeks we'll begin simply recounting the apostles and Nicene creed as part of our evening worship uh, Canons of Dort here, uh, dealing with the doctrine of assurance and telling us that doubts might creep in. Uh, this is one of the things that we've we've seen in the book of Hebrews. We've been contemplating assurance, uh, especially through chapter 6. And what we saw is that assurance uh, does not so belong to the essence of faith that the believer might uh, not at times uh, deal with a season of doubt. But even then, remember... As we sometimes say, assurance doesn't belong to the essence of faith or assurance is not of the essence of faith. That isn't confessional. Uh, Assurance belongs to faith. Faith belongs to assurance. But even here we find uh, the balance that we have in our confession. And that is that sometimes, let us emphasize sometimes, in exceptional cases, this isn't the norm, but sometimes the believer will go through seasons of doubt so that his uh, his faith wanes. And he begins to lack assurance. But what we also notice is that God brings the believer through those times so that he begins to possess the full assurance of faith again as the more ordinary course of his life. In which case, I think that the confessions and the reformers were, in fact, more agreed than uh, some people today like to point out. Uh, Both of them saying, again, that assurance does belong to faith as uh, the proper work of faith. So doubts concerning this assurance below that article 11. Please read along with me. Meanwhile, Scripture testifies that believers have to contend in this life with various doubts of the flesh and that under severe temptation, they do not always experience this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. But God, the Father of all comfort, does not let them be tempted beyond what they can bear. But with the temptation, he also provides a way out and by the Holy Spirit revives in them the assurance of their perseverance. I hope that I think that's an excellent statement. I hope that uh, we have an appreciation for the balance then of uh, the subject. And uh, let us turn now in preparation for the reading and the preaching of God's word by standing and singing together hymn 558.
saving merit. Amen. Please be seated. And again, let us turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a passage I've been turning to often. I've been thinking about. I've been going over old sermons from uh, 2 Corinthians uh, from when I preached that in 2017. This is one of the crucial statements, I think, along with Hebrews 3, but recently we, we considered that already, that helps us to appreciate and understand Moses' ministry. Uh, and so I, I could have saved it for longer into the, the passage when we got, perhaps, let's say, to Exodus 34, or as, as it, made, it increasingly made sense to me to preach it early on in his life and in his ministry to have a proper appreciation for that ministry in light of the new covenant. So Moses uh, stood over, or he stood actually in, sometimes it said over, but that's not right, Hebrews 3. He stood in the house, he was faithful in the house. Christ stands over the house as the builder. Uh, the house in which Moses served was the old covenant. The, the house over which Christ stands as the builder and the Savior is the new covenant. Let us explore that contrast a little bit by looking at Second Corinthians chapter 3. Obviously, we've been looking at it in terms of the priesthood in Hebrews, but uh, now, now we might look at it in terms of these two men, Jesus and Moses. Are we beginning, he says, to commend ourselves again, or do we need some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that, they, that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation is glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What a rich and edifying passage. I hope we might catch a glimpse of uh, the glory of the old covenant in this passage. Uh, Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired as they were. We pray that by these words you might shed uh, greater light once more on your word and especially the relationship between the covenants. As we now belong to the new covenant, seek to understand and to appreciate the old covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, we're still in Exodus. This is part of the Exodus series. Uh, We had just finished chapter 4, and as I say next week, Lord willing, we'll look at uh, chapter 5. But uh, what I I hope to do here is to explore one of, if not its single major theme from what the New Testament has to say about it, namely the glory of God as it is revealed to and through the ministry of Moses. This is something that stands out very strongly as you read the book of Exodus, and increasingly so as you uh, work your way through the book. It's something that we will notice throughout. Not only the fact that God was revealing his glory to Moses, and Moses experienced personally the glory of God, but that Moses as a minister in the household of God reflected the glory of God in the presence of the people. And so this was obviously a major aspect, if not the major aspect, of the ministry of the man Moses. 
He was to become an object by which God revealed his own glory. Uh, this was also the great thing he wanted from God. Going back to chapter 33, which I thought of reading as well, where Moses' prayer to God is, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And so we see how the old covenant was indeed a glorious ministry. Again, understanding the old covenant as the covenant which God brought about through the ministry of Moses. Again, no one can read Exodus through Deuteronomy, which is what we are beginning to do, and fail to see this aspect. But what is the point of considering this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as part of our study of Exodus? Well, for one thing, I think sometimes we Christians need a little help in how we are to think of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. How are we to read our Old Testaments? How are we to understand them? What value uh, should we uh, should we place upon these things? But here we have uh, a helpful passage of Scripture. We have the New Testament specifically describing what the Old Covenant represents and what it represented in relation to the New. And so because of this, we're greatly helped in understanding and answering this question. How it is, as a new covenant believer, I am to feel about the old covenant and the value it has to me, just as the value it had for them. But another reason it is valuable to look at a passage like this is because there's two dangers uh, which confront the Christian in the new covenant. Dangers which I want to address before we go any further in our study of Exodus. One is that we so diminish the glory of the old covenant that we treat it as though it had none. And I want to suggest this is a very real danger confronting Christians, one which has confronted them all along. There are Christian pulpits today that do not preach the Old Testament. And you may remember that I was incredibly reluctant to do so myself. It takes work, admittedly, for the Christian, the new covenant believer, to fully appreciate all of the great things that God was revealing about himself there. Now, it is true, and there's something of a paradox here that I wish to explore later on in the sermon, but... Let me just say here that in comparison to the new covenant, the glory of the old covenant disappears almost entirely. And the temptation, therefore, that faces the believer is simply to disregard his Old Testament, not to read it, not to wish uh, to hear sermons from it and so on. Paul uh, even speaks of it here as having a fading glory in verses nine and eleven. But he still maintains in verse 7 that it came with glory. Oh yes, Paul says, fading as its glory was, it was still a glorious ministry. And we even find the same thought implied in the other passage we read in Hebrews chapter 3. That Jesus exceeded the glory of the old covenant, but implied there is the thought that the old covenant came with glory. And so I would maintain in the face of this danger... That we can never properly appreciate the ministry of Moses and our Old Testaments until we can say the same thing. Compared to the New Covenant, it would seem as though it had no glory at all. But in reality, it was indeed a glorious ministry. And we should see the value and rejoice in seeing what God was doing through his servant Moses. But then on the other side, there is another danger which often confronts the church under the new covenant and which it seems was confronting uh, almost every Christian in the early church in the first century. And that is that we make too much of the glory of the old covenant, that we assign to it uh, a glory that uh, it never in reality possessed and certainly a glory which it no longer possesses now that the new covenant has come. This, as I say, is a temptation which always seems to enter in and to confront the Christian and the New Testament believer. Something which is addressed throughout the New Testament. It is our tendency to think too much of Moses and especially the law which he gave at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, thinking somehow that through the keeping of these laws that we are made acceptable to God. Now, Uh, There is a word for this. I think we all know the word for this. The word is called legalism. The New Testament is constantly confronting this error. And the reality is that we are all legalists by heart. We all have a legal frame of spirit. We all have a legal way of thinking according to the flesh. And it takes a lifetime uh, sitting under the teaching of the New Testament to shake us free from our legalism. One of the ways that we are shaken free from our legalism is appreciating the differences between the old and the new 
new covenants and situating the old covenant in its proper place in relation to the new covenant. Only then are we truly free. Those who enjoy what he speaks of here as the liberty of the spirit, where the spirit is, there is liberty in contrast to legalism. And so in considering my answer to that danger, in considering the glory of the old covenant, which we are meant to consider, we should always realize there is a vastly greater glory to be found in the new covenant through the ministry of Christ, which is uh, how I entitled this sermon. And so setting aside the book of Exodus for a moment, let us look at this subject from the viewpoint of the New Testament. And as it compares these two dispensations in reality, as our confession says, there is only one covenant of grace which God uh, introduced through Moses. And as we saw in the morning, he, he uh, interposed with an oath, assuring that that promise would stand. But that one covenant of grace comes in two dispensations, the old covenant through Moses, the new covenant through Christ, but one covenant of grace. This is a very full passage. You must have noticed that in the reading. Uh, going back to my old sermons, I notice I preached three sermons on it. All that I want to do here is to hit the major points. First, we notice in this chapter that the Apostle Paul is contemplating his own adequacy as a minister. Like Moses, he had a sense of his own inadequacy in the presence of the call of God and what he was, uh, the task he was called to perform. And yet, interestingly here, what he is contemplating upon is what it is that gave him a sense of adequacy as a minister. Uh, Not himself, but God, verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. In chapter 2, he had been reflecting on this point, and here he's just expounding upon it. His place, his adequacy as a minister. If you look at chapter 2, you'll see that. And when he said, interest, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. And from there, and really uh, even before going back to verse 3, when he speaks of uh, the letters of Christ, that is the readers, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Even in verse 3, he is... He is uh, Explaining this contrast, or he's contrasting these two covenants. In doing so, he's reflecting upon the privilege of being a minister of the new and not of the old. And the adequacy he finds from God as a direct result of being a minister once more, not of the old, but of the new covenant. What a glorious privilege it is to be a minister of this covenant, he says. And this leads him to explore the differences through a series of comparisons and let me just see how many there are. I don't remember. There are four. There are four comparisons that he makes. The first is found in verse 6. The first comparison is between the letter that kills, written on tablets of stone, uh, referring obviously to the giving of the law at Sinai, which we saw. The tablets, uh, were what was written on those tablets of stone was the Ten Commandments, Exodus 34. That on the one hand and on the other, the Spirit who gives life. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, verse 6. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And and in several places he refers to the letter as the letter written on tablets of stone. Once again, the law of God given at Sinai. Paul is saying that he is a minister of one and not the other. He is a minister of the new dispensation, which is marked by the life of the spirit, not the letter of the law. Now, as soon as we see this as one of the fundamental contrasts at play between the Old and New Covenant, it is important that we do not overstate or misunderstand the contrast. About verse 6, again, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. J. Gresham Machen says in the book, What is Faith? That sentence is perhaps the most frequently misused utterance in the whole Bible. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What does he mean? Well, there are many misunderstandings or misstatements of what he means. In J. Gresham Machen's day in the 1920s, when liberalism was in full swing and taking over the mainline Protestant churches, just as it seems to be doing today in the evangelical churches, let me add, what was being said was that the outward letter of the Bible was not the really important thing. 
Just the spirit of the matter. For them, it was a lowercase s. Not the letter, but the spirit. That's the important thing. It was a clever argument by the liberals to disregard the Bible itself in its plain meaning in favor of their own interpretations, which were very loose. In other words, for them, it was a statement which promoted an indifference to doctrine and to a rigorous adherence to biblical truths. Such a thing, they suggested, actually destroys the life of a Christian. The letter kills. You're being a legalist when you adhere to every word, every letter, every statement of Scripture. The very rigor of your religion is the thing that uh, destroys the life and the soul of religion. That was their argument. Well, that's a false view, obviously. I think we can just look at the passage and know that isn't true. There was no man who was ever so rigorous in his understanding of Scripture as the Apostle Paul himself. Uh, save only, let us say, Jesus. Very rigorous in their understandings. Very dogmatic. That isn't what the Apostle meant at all. Another false view and this is one that is uh, very common today, is that the letter or the law is something that is bad, and the Christian therefore does well to avoid it. Now, I'm conceding that the letter is the letter of the law, and I will also concede that the letter kills, but I will not concede that the Christian does well to avoid it. And yet that is what is being said today and what has been said for a long time. According to this view, if the Christian wants to live, he must have nothing more to do with the law. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find in such a pulpit any preaching of the Old Testament. He must deal, he says, purely or he would say purely in terms of the spirit, viewing the Christian life as the absence of law and the presence of the spirit. So fundamental is the difference between these two things. That they can never touch or meet. Now, ask yourself this question. What is the spirit producing in the Christian if not what the law commands? That is not entirely clear. And so that is the kind of muddled thinking that you find in what we call antinomianism. Well, I think we want to avoid legalism and antinomianism equally, don't we? Let us try to deal with the actual meaning of the passage The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Again, it's a contrast in covenants. We recognize that. But what is the essence of the contrast and what is he driving at? Helping us to understand the whole purpose of the old covenant through the ministry of Moses. Well, he says in verse six what he says. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. I think we could say about that contrast that it is stated almost as strongly as it can be. Almost to the point where we are bound to concede that the antinomian is right, except we know that he isn't. You also find the same contrast as we've seen in verse 3, where we see that the inward reality is superior to the outward letter. You are our letter of Christ, he says to his hearers, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but tablets of the human heart. The inward is superior to the outward. Nobody disputes this. There isn't a single view which disputes this. The spirit is obviously a more powerful influence on the believer's life than certain commandments which were written down on tablets of stone. That is not to say, however, one has no value. That the tablets of stone given to Moses had no value at all. It's only to say that one is obviously better than the other and vastly so. The law written on the heart, the human heart is superior to the law written on tablets of stone. Obviously. Understanding this difference is one of the keys to understanding the difference between the old covenant as mediated by the man Moses and the new covenant as mediated by the spirit of God at Pentecost. Let me just add the two great events of these two covenants uh, viewed from this vantage point is the giving of the law at Sinai in the old covenant and the giving of the spirit at Pentecost in the new covenant. And it is in contrasting these two events that we discover their fundamental contrast. The great difference amounts to this. In the Old Covenant, the law came in written form as a legal code at Sinai on tablets of stone. But in the New Covenant, the Spirit of the living God is poured out upon the church at Pentecost. Notice I said the Spirit of the living God because where the Spirit is, there is life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 6 again. And because the old covenant, as ministered by Moses, was a ministry of law, given the nature of law, it was a ministry of death because the letter kills. Not only what he says in verse six, but also verse seven, the letter kills the ministry of death. Verse seven, take those two statements 
together. Whereas the new, new covenant is a ministry of life in the spirit and of liberty. Well, that is the contrast I want to explore a little bit more. Uh, still under this first heading. What does Paul mean when he says the letter kills and that the old covenant is ministered by Moses as it was primarily a covenant of law or a dispensation of law under the covenant of grace, if we're to be highly specific? What does he mean when he says it was a ministry of death? Well, for one thing, he obviously means that the written law as purely written, a purely written code, was devoid of the power to impart life. It was inadequate to do so as that law stood on those tablets. Something more was needed and that something more was the spirit of the living God to take the law which was written on those tablets and to write it on man's heart as a living principle. And that is exactly what God promises he will do in the new covenant as it is stated for instance in Jeremiah 31 when God promises in the new covenant that will come I will write their laws no longer on the tablets of stone but on their hearts. The fundamental difference therefore is not that you find law in one and not in the other. That the old covenant was marked by the law, but the new covenant uh, was marked by the absence of law. It is rather the difference is seen in the way in which the law comes to us. In which the law is presented, the way in which we interact with the law and seek to live out the law, obeying its dictates and commands. In the new covenant, it not only comes to us as a legal code, it does, the Ten Commandments stand The new covenant is written also with ink. It's written down on paper. It comes to us in the form of a book. And so it still comes to us in that way, but it is not limited to that. It also comes to us in the life and the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who writes this code on our hearts. And in doing so, he enables us to do something the written code by itself never could do. And that is to live by this law. Seen in this way, the New Testament believer is not to avoid the law, still less is the new covenant seen as the absence of law. But rather, if you think of it, we find the fullness of law that Jesus speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount in the believer himself. Because he possesses and is filled with the Spirit of God. The the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. How does he do so? By imparting the law of God into the believer as a living principle. And so it is, a, it is a contrast between the dead letter and the living spirit. But it's obviously something more as well, the contrast between uh, the ministry of death and the ministry of life. There is something in the law apart from the spirit he tells us that kills. It isn't just that the law fails to impart life. It, it does fail to do that. But it is also true that it actually kills And that it is intended to kill. That is its function. That is its purpose. It is important for us to see how it does so. The New Testament has much to say on the subject. How it is that the New Testament or the law of God kills. But let me try to put it as simply as I can. The law of God given at Sinai. With which the Old Testament believer had to deal. And with which we have to deal. Its demands are just as relevant today as they were then. It kills because it demands And where those demands are not met in full, it punishes. That is the nature of law. Law, if I may put it this way, is not interested in your excuses as you fail to keep it. It simply makes you aware of your duty. And where that duty is not performed, then it brings in certain punishments. And in the case of God's law, the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. That's something that God was clear about from the very beginning. That as soon as Adam and Eve transgressed his holy law in the garden, on that very day they would die. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. On the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And through death, through sin, death came into the world. Romans 5. Now, does that mean that the law is sin or that the law of God is somehow flawed? No, it doesn't. To say this is not to point to a defect in the law. To speak of it as a ministry of death. The law, in fact, cannot be faulted for this. This is simply how the law itself functions. But again, don't misunderstand the Apostle Paul in speaking of the law written on tablets of stone under the the ministry of Moses as a ministry of death. Do not hear him thus condemning the law or seeking to diminish somehow the glory of the old covenant. It isn't the law that is to blame, he says, for this. It is my sin. 
It is that I am a transgressor of the law and by my sin I die under the law. Listen to how he puts it in Romans chapter 7 verses 8 through 11. Understanding this is the fundamental plight of the old believer under the old covenant and really the, uh, the man today under the law. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death to me. Why? For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The reason the law works death and is a ministry of death is because the law deals with sinners as sinners. And as I say, this was the very dilemma that every Old Testament believer faced himself. He possessed the law. It was given to him as a unique privilege and inheritance. And yet he found in the law as a written legal code, no power to keep it, no life. And in his, in, in his inability to keep it, his experience was exactly what Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. Through the law, sin became alive and it killed me. Let me ask you this question. Actually, two questions about this. If the Old Covenant was a ministry of death, does that mean that no one was saved under under the Old Covenant? Does that mean that everyone who lived under the ministry of Moses was killed by his ministry? That the law, in essence, succeeded in killing them all off? No, it doesn't. It simply means that for the Jew under the law, every bit as much as for us, that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, that's an abiding principle. That's something that is always true. And it was true then, just as it is true now. And this means that for the old covenant believer under the law, that he was saved in precisely the same way that you and I are saved. Not through the law, because the law is a ministry of death. But through the promise which was made to him in the old covenant of a new and a better covenant. It was by looking with Abraham ahead to the day of Christ and being glad. And so by faith he was saved, not through the law. In other words, again, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He was to look forward to the dispensation in which that was true. And through his hope and through his faith, he was saved, not through his law keeping. That also brings in another interesting question. And that is, if God made these gracious promises to Abraham, why did he ever give the law at all? If this is all it did, if it was a ministry of death, and as we'll see in a moment, also a ministry of condemnation. If there is a straight line between the promises given to Abraham and the fulfillment in Christ, Genesis 15, Galatians 3, why did he ever interpose or uh, or or bring about this this intermediary arrangement, which we call the giving of the law through Moses? Without going into any great detail, Paul asked that question in Galatians 3. Why then the law? I think it's verse 19. Given the fact that what he promised to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ. And the giving of the law represented no setting aside of that promise. Well, Paul tells us very clearly in verses 23 and 24 of that chapter that the reason he gave us he gave us the law and the Jews the law was so that it might lead us more strongly to Christ. And so that we might see under the tutelage of the law as our schoolmaster, our great need for a savior, that we as sinners could never be righteous through the law. Read your Old Testaments and you will see that time and time again. You will see how it is that the Old Testament was a ministry of death, not or excuse me, the law was a ministry of death and not a ministry of life and how needful it would be that the savior would come at just the right time. In other words, what we discover from the Old Testament as much as anywhere else is that the letter kills But as we discover in our New Testaments, the spirit gives life. But that is not all. See how the contrast is amplified when he says that the old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. Verse nine, the minute for if the ministry of condemnation is glory, how much more the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. You have condemnation, one covenant, righteousness, the other covenant. You see, he's now going beyond what he's already said. And he's stating the matter stronger still. The letter not only kills, it condemns. Again, as I said under the prior heading, it deals with the sinner as a sinner, which is to say as a transgressor of God's holy law. And God is the giver of the law. And as the judge of man pronounces the verdict guilty, 
Which is what we mean when we speak of condemnation. The man who is condemned under the law is he who is pronounced guilty at the bar of God's justice. All that awaits him, therefore, the man who lives under the law, again, whether that be the Jew of the old covenant or the man today who seeks to be righteous through the law of Moses, all that awaits him is the final judgment. He is one who lives under its condemnation, the condemnation of the law. His life is full of dread and uneasiness as he awaits the rendering of that verdict on the last day and all the misery that awaits him following that in hell. Yes, Paul says, the old covenant was a ministry of condemnation uh, condemnation in the sense that it was a ministry of law. And the sinner who deals with law or who deals with God through law is one, is someone who is condemned. The same contrast is stated in Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19. Stated a little differently, not in terms of Moses and Christ, but Adam and Christ. But the contrast is one and the same. Condemnation and death on the one hand justification and life on the other. Listen to what he says. So then, as through one transgression, that is the transgression of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteousness. Again, a ministry Of condemnation on the one hand and a ministry of righteousness and life on the other. That's the contrast. Why is the new covenant a ministry of righteousness? We see why the old covenant is a ministry of condemnation. But the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness simply because it brings in righteousness. Because it makes righteousness for the sinner something that is possible. Something that is within his grasp. Something that the law could never do. Again, as he sought righteousness through the law, it only killed him and it condemned him. It never made him righteous. But the new covenant succeeds in bringing the believer into a state of righteousness before God. How does it do so? It brings him into Christ. And Christ is his righteousness. The believer in Christ is justified or declared righteousness. And for him, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation. Why? Because, again, Christ is now his righteousness, as Paul later says in the same epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, speaking of the ministry of the reconciliation like this, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Verse 21, he made him to be no sin, who knew no sin, rather, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ condemned on the cross is our pardon. Christ, the righteous one, who obeys Romans chapter 5, is our righteousness. In him our sin is pardoned. In him righteousness is achieved. In him righteousness is imputed to the believer. And so the new covenant is a, is a ministry not of condemnation, but of righteousness. But the one who thinks he might be righteous before God on his own through the law because he's such a good law keeper will only find condemnation and death. In other words, uh, if I were to put the matter as starkly as I could in contrasting these two covenants, you will never find righteousness and you will never find justification in anything Moses did or said. You will only ever find these things in Jesus Christ. And so we have to appreciate this about Moses and about the Old Covenant. That Moses offered to us a great deal. And the last thing I'm interested in doing in my preaching of Exodus is to diminish that. But we also have to be clear about what he did not offer. Moses revealed, as we will see, so much of the glory of God. And even of the righteousness of God in revealing the law. But his ministry was not a saving one. What Moses was not offering to the people was salvation. Salvation seen as justification in life is the ministry of Jesus Christ alone. And so perhaps I could put it like this. How was Moses himself saved? Did you ever think of that? Did Moses think that in giving the law he found his own savior and his own salvation? I think I can say with certainty that for Moses he recognized that he could not be saved by keeping the law he gave. And this is because he knew as well as Paul that his ministry was not a saving one. It had great value, but it was inadequate in itself to save. This is something that Moses himself must have been keenly aware of. How then was he saved? Again, 
I've already made the point, but let me make it again. He was saved in exactly the same way as you as, and, as you and me. And that is by saving faith in Jesus Christ. By looking ahead with Abraham to Jesus' day with gladness and with faith. The law works death. The law condemns. The law saves no one. But the real argument, the third contrast, actually has to do with the glory of each. In fact, Paul has just been describing these two covenants by what we've seen thus far. Uh, the ministry of, of death and condemnation contrasted with the ministry of life and righteousness. But what he's really seeking to do is to say one had glory, but the other far more. Look at verses 7 through 11. If the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. You see, every verse is describing the contrast. One glorious, the other far more. And yet we're left with this question, seeing that the old covenant was a ministry of death and of condemnation, why uh, is this the point? Admittedly, one would not have thought this would be the point, the glory of the old covenant. You would think he would say, based on this fact, that the old covenant was a ministry of death and condemnation. One had no glory, while the other simply abounded. But to say that, we must immediately recognize, now that we are beginning, in fact, to study our Old Testaments, would show an alarming degree of ignorance about that covenant, what God was doing in the Old Testament. As I've already indicated, we plainly see the hallmark of Moses' ministry was a revelation and experience of the glory of God. To say that that covenant had no glory is to show an appalling ignorance of that covenant. Here was the great thing once more that Moses desired to see, and by grace which he actually saw, the glory of God. There is simply no question but that the old covenant, there was a, in the old covenant, there was a glorious aspect, which was actually present on the very face of Moses. So the old covenant and the Old Testament was certainly glorious. And let us never seek to diminish the glory of that covenant. But just as soon as we say this, let us also realize that the new covenant is far more glorious still. To such an extent... That by comparison, the old covenant appears to have no glory at all. Verse 10. Indeed, that which had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory which surpasses it. Again, that's where the paradox comes in. I spoke of this earlier. The paradox that confronts the new covenant believer. The new covenant so far surpasses the old covenant in glory. As we look upon it, it appears as though it has none at all. It is so far outshone by the glory of the new covenant. That we struggle Immensely looking at our Old Testaments to discover and to see anything of the glory of God. It would almost appear to us that the Old Covenant has no glory at all. But what we have to recognize is that, uh, is that this is the intended effect of the transcendent glory of the, of the New Covenant, which so far outshines the Old Covenant in glory that it is difficult to see any at all. It is not to tell us that there was none there. It is only to point to its own transcendent glory. And so let us be careful to notice in our reading of the Old Covenant the glory of God. And let us rejoice to see it there. But lastly, the fourth contrast is this, or comparison. Uh, found in verses 12 and following, it is a comparison in ministries between uh, the ministry of Moses and the ministry of the Apostle Paul as an ambassador of the New Covenant. What we see in verse 12 is that Paul's Ministry was marked by plainness of speech and boldness. Verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. It's strange that he would, he would even have to say this. But it actually has to do once more with the comparison that he is making between these two covenants and what it is to be a minister of each. Because the significance of the veil of Moses. And remember, I told you to keep that in mind. That as his glory, as the glory of God shone from his face, he would put a veil over it so that the people could not see the glory of God shining on his face. The significance of the purpose of that veil was to conceal 
not to reveal. It was to obscure, not to make plain. Verse 13. We who are plain in our speech, he says, are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. In a sense, you could say they were not meant to see that glory and they were not prepared to do so. And that is still true of the one who deals with Moses only. The one who thinks that salvation can be found through his ministry under the law of the old covenant. This man, now as he was then, is completely hopeless. To this day, he says, verse 15, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. There, beloved, is the tragedy of the Jew. The glory of God on display in the face of Moses, and yet they cannot see it. The reality for them is that they don't even understand their own scriptures. As to their true purpose and the hope which is found there in the Old Testament, they have no proper grasp. For him, as for us all, there's only one solution as the veil remains over the old covenant through the ministry of Moses. And that is to behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant. The same veil remains unlifted again, the tragedy of the Jews. But here is the solution stated all at once. It is removed in Christ. He is the one who takes away the veil. He is the one who makes us understand. He is the one who enables us to behold the glory of God, as John states at the beginning of his gospels, uh, gospel, excuse me. The only way is to turn to the Lord, as he says in verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's how it's removed in Christ. Turn to the Lord, he says. He says it to the Jew. He says it to every man. Turn to Christ. Only then is the veil removed so that things suddenly become clear. You see, again, if a man is to be saved, if he is to know God and find righteousness before him, if he is to understand his scriptures rightly, he can never do so by turning to Moses. Moses is no savior. He was just a prophet and nothing more. It's only by turning to the Lord, he says, who is the spirit and finding the liberty of the spirit. And here he speaks uh, of the spirit and Jesus Christ interchangeably since they are one and the same God. Only by turning to the Lord, who is the spirit, that we are able, as he says, to behold the glory of God and then to be transformed from glory unto glory. Verse 18. Fundamentally, unlike the Old Testament believer who looks upon Moses and there the veil remains. Just as it was on that day. It is such a tremendous argument, is it not? The effect of it all is to say, realize the whole point of the old covenant. The great person there was obviously Moses. But he was never supposed to be the final spokesperson for God. We know from Hebrews chapter 3 and from Moses' own ministry that he spoke a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. He was never the final spokesperson. He never spoke the final word as Christ later did. In other words, Moses pointed beyond himself, which is true of every prophet. How could the Old Testament saint fail to see this, thinking Moses himself was the end of the law and not Christ? But as Moses looked beyond his own day, he was never able to enjoy what Paul is expressing here. This sense of adequacy that comes from God on the basis of the new covenant. While Moses only looked forward to it, Paul actually enjoyed it. And this is something, beloved, that we should all be thankful for, that we are able to enjoy the ministry of ministers of the new covenant and not of the old for, as he says. And I hope we have some understanding now. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Thank God for that. And let us uh, let us now turn to the Lord in song by standing and singing together hymn 582. Oh. 
now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.